Most accountants are very conservative and they don't like debt. So they never, ever consider going into debt to buy a practice. It's just getting too difficult to run a practice on your own as a sole trader. And you need to get it at least 800,000, six to 800,000 before you find it gets a bit easier because you then have resources around you. Most businesses, you, you've got to reach a critical mass before it becomes a business, not a job. And in accounting, it's at least 600, so 800 would be better. And at a million dollars, as long as you run it properly, then you'll find it, it's much easier. Listening to Australia's tax news podcast, Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. Welcome to episode 203 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson, and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. In this episode, we will delve deeper into buying parcels of fees. But please make sure you first listen to the last episode so that this one makes more sense. When and why would you engage a business broker? What do you look for in a due diligence? And how do you determine what the parcel slash practice is worth? These are some of the questions I want to ask Ed Chen of Wise Mentoring and Chen and Naylor. employ a broker you indicated that you don't employ a broker to negotiate the purchases we do both chan and ayla does both some firms just employ a broker because we do have a database of accountants so we can do that but most firms can't do that so they generally either advertise or they use a broker i see so if you have the choice you don't employ a broker and you just negotiate directly but the buyer might want to engage a broker or the buyer might have already engaged a broker and you found out about this practice through the broker correct correct okay and then if there is a broker the seller pays the broker correct you don't pay the broker correct, correct? generally the seller pays the broker engages the broker he, signs, he or she signs a contract with them and there's a percentage for the brokerage and they're, they're engaged to sell the practice. But there are times when you can engage a buyer's agent for you to go looking for a parcel fees and then you've got to pay that person who finds that parcel fees for you. Do you find the practices that employ a broker achieving a higher sales price? No, because it's... It's pretty standard, Heidi. It's only on one or two methods. It's either on an EBIT basis, so many times EBIT, or it's a dollar per dollar or, you know, or 80 cents and a dollar or dollar 20 cents. I find the broker helps in facilitating the sale process. I think that's where they come into, into fall because often the buyers and the sellers have different ideas of what, you know, what, what is fair. And the broker is like the referee that navigates a middle ground for both parties and talks sense to both parties. because It keeps the egos apart. Yes, exactly. Because often, you know, you, you are in your own bubble and you don't know what's out there and you think you want this, but it's really unreasonable what you're asking for from both the buyer and the seller. And the broker tends to, you know, keep 
the piece and navigate the transaction through. And that's what you pay them to do. And if they're any good at it, it's not the price. It's actually getting the whole deal through because there's a lot of things that you've got to you've got to navigate. There is a lot of egos. There's a lot of feelings. There's a lot of pride. There's a lot of blame games because, you know, if a client leaves, the vendor always blames the buyer for not doing his or her job properly and then the seller doesn't want to pay for that and obviously says it's not my fault I never did that so there's a lot of blaming going on and the broker is the one that keeps the peace and talks sense to both parties and gets the deal through that's where their value is looking at the purchase price to buy a parcel fee you mentioned a range of 80 cents to a dollar 20 per one dollar of revenue but then you said the price could also be based on ebit what mm -hmm. would the percentage be on ebit how much would you pay for a certain ebit it's between three to four times ebit after partner salaries so um, the ebit has to include the partner's salaries now obviously what you put down as a partner's salaries would determine the ebit so it's um generally market salary but you know obviously market is different between sydney and melbourne and the country and and so forth so it's uh it's the not market salary is not, not an exact size yes yeah, so i can imagine most negotiations are based on sales because ebit depends on so many things it might be a really expensive office no if it's under a million dollars it's on dollar per dollar on turnover but if it's over a million dollars it's done on ebit oh okay But all banks will only lend based on a valuation on EBIT. They won't lend on a dollar-per-dollar dollar basis. They oh, okay. will only lend on EBIT. And all contracts are all done on EBIT. So EBIT is because you're buying, you're not really buying the client uh, list. The client you buy the list. You're buying the business. And the bigger it is and the more staff you have, it's the business you're buying, not the client list. So the bigger the practice, the more profitable it is the higher the, the valuation, obviously. But if you're getting an EBIT of 25% and you you are able to sell it for four times EBIT of 25%, it comes back to a dollar per dollar anyway. But if you're not doing 25% and you're only doing 20%, as an example, then four times 20% is 80 cents in a dollar. It comes back to those figures anyway, but the real measure of what a business is worth is on EBIT. However, there is a good, strong demand for practices for sale that are under a million dollars, and often because of the demand, it's valued at a dollar-per-dollar dollar basis. parcel fee can you pick the types of clients so can you say for example i only or have you done that in the past when you bought practices in the past did you pick clients or did you buy you bought the entire business didn't you so you didn't say oh we only want the smsf clients or we only want the business clients you didn't separate the two no we didn't um, but we had had situations where there's some clients we just didn't want so, for example, there was one instance that there was one client that was over $100,000 and we learned that he was a very poor payer. So the amount of debtors that was on the practitioner's books mainly was coming from this one client. So we 
Didn't we excluded, yeah, we excluded that client. So you know, we said you can sell that somewhere else. So we have picked and chose, but also you know, if you get a database that the clients are really old, and uh, they might be sixty-five, seventy years old, and they're going to sell their business, and if you're going to pay a dollar per dollar for the fees, you want, you know, you want at least four or five years out of them to not only get your capital back, but also to make some money on top of it, because you don't want just to recover your capital, you want to make some money. And uh, so, you know, if then if they're 85 years old, you know, they might sell it the next year. And then, well, they might be no longer in, correct. in three months. Correct. So you've got to look at the database and your due diligence. And, and there's no right or wrong answer, Heidi. It just depends on the situation, depends on the client base, depends on so many things. And then at the end of it, you may have to make a judgment call. For example, if you were looking at buying this parcel fees and, you know, 10%, 20% of them were elderly and you said to the vendor, I'm not going to buy these clients or you offer a cheaper price, the vendor may accept that or the vendor may not accept that and he'll put that business back on the market and if someone's willing to give him, you know, what he wants for it, then he'll sell it and, you know, that's just the way it goes. So there's no right or wrong answer. It's just negotiated between the two parties. But the baseline is, you know, around a dollar per dollar if it's under a million dollars and uh, if it's over a million dollars, it's valued by EBIT and if you're doing a 25% EBIT after partner salary, then you'll get four times that EBIT and it comes back to a dollar per dollar. If you're doing 20% EBIT, you'll come down to, you'll come back to 80 cents on a dollar. So, uh, and if you're doing 30% EBIT and, um, you know, you'll get a dollar 20 per dollar because, you know, that's what you end up paying. And if you divide what you paid into the turnover to work out the dollar per dollar basis, you'll find out that, you know, 30% EBIT, you'll come back to about a dollar twenty or so. And uh, at 20% EBIT, it'll come to about 80 cents in a dollar. So it all works out around the, you know, you, you end up paying around around that. Um, so it's not, the, the price hasn't been a real sticking point for most purchasers. In, in the odd one that it has been, it's mainly around the terms. The terms is... The retention, the retention and the period they the, need to stay. Correct. That's the, generally speaking, that's the more difficult negotiation because often the vendor, as I said earlier, want the buyer to, to come into their premises. And in most cases, the vendor buyer, the purchaser, wants the vendor to move his offices to the buyer's, to the buyer's offices. of the client base for a dollar for dollar you usually need four to five years to recover your purchase price so on that basis you probably would only pay a dollar for dollar for a client who is 60 or younger assuming that the average retirement age is 65 you would probably start decreasing the, the rate price. as the client is older than 60. Yes, generally. However, there's lots of businesses where they've already got a succession plan in place, so their children might be, you know, be grooming to take over, and uh, you know, so they'll stay with you. So in that case, he may be 85 years old, but you know, he's already got his son taking over, daughter taking over, and um, 
it's going to continue. So you would mm. give, you paid a full rate for it. So you really need to delve into the client Absolutely. base. Yeah, the due diligence will uncover all of that. And then, so there's one, the first round of negotiations is uh, what I call getting the big rocks in place. You know, is there a fit? Is there a, like generally the price is right, agreed on? You're happy to move your premises. Uh, you're happy to stay on. So they're the big rocks. And then once you got those big rocks in place and you may even go into a heads of agreement and then the due diligence starts and once the due diligence starts you uncover all those things and then there's a second round of negotiation so um, if it all goes according to plan all the clients are young and there's there's no issues with transition or selling their businesses or whatever then you know the heads agreement just turns into a contract but in the event there's some changes, like when we did our due diligence, we uncovered there was a one client that was 100000 in fees and he didn't want to pay. So we said, no, we had to exclude that client. So the second round of negotiations occurs after the due diligence. But mm-hmm. you want to try and get most of the things out of the way in the heads of agreement. And that leaves with a minor handful of things once you do your due diligence. Mm-hmm. It's like sometimes... Most of the time, the you know the, the agreement is that the the vendor, the seller, retains his or her debtors, and uh, and pays out his own creditors, and also staff entitlements. But in Victoria, you can't do that. You've got to carry over the staff entitlement to the purchaser, and uh, in that case, you have to take the costs of the staff entitlements off the price of the practice. So it's just all different. Yes, uh, yes. Who does the due diligence? Who does the review? Is it you or do you have a team who basically is specialised in reviews and does the reviews no, for like you? No, just, just the, the accountant who's buying the practice. See, the accountant... But, is, I mean, in the case of Chen and Naila, oh, who does the review? Yeah, it's the office that's buying the fee base. And so it would be the partner the of partner, that office? Yes. Because they... They know the business. They know the industry. They know the business. They there's no there's nothing special. Yeah, they are on the ground. They're on the ground. Yeah, so they know what to look for. So you can say go and do a due diligence. They know, they know exactly what to do because they've been running a practice for years and uh, they know what the the problems are, what what a good client is, what a bad client is, you know, and and so they know they know all that with a little bit of guidance from myself that helps. But it's in the negotiation of the, of the contract. It's uh, things like, and because I've done so many of them, I've come across all sorts of situations or all of the situations. I've had situations when most of the vendors are genuine, but then you always get, you know, a handful of rogues and they'll sell you a parcel fees and then they'll try and pinch the clients off you, right? And then the clients leave you because they've been their accountant for 30 years or 20 years and nothing to do with, with the buyer. It's just that... They the, follow Bob around from correct. sale to sale. They just follow correct. Bob. And Bob has sold them many times. Yes. And, uh, you know, they come back in the market and then they try to take the client back. And then they'll say, oh, the client uh, went on his own accord. And, you know, the law says you can't stop a client from leaving you. So in our contracts, we have all the clauses in there to minimise that from happening. And that's all you can do because um, at the end of the day, it's true, it's, it's up to the client and if the client wants to leave, then you can't do anything to yeah. stop them. And one clause is probably they're not allowed to approach the client, but another clause is probably that they are not allowed to set up an accounting practice within a radius of 20 kilometres. That's correct. But because of technology, the yes, distance isn't that an issue. Apply yeah, so we, 
you know, we have clients all over Australia, even around the world. So technology is allowed distance to not be an issue. Yeah, so that is then no longer a protection. Yeah, so we, we put in a clause in the contract that says that, that if the client left us and went back to him or to an entity that he or she was Controls. involved with, they have to refund us the money. And that's fair. You know, if you sell yes. someone's a, if you I always use this example, if you sell someone a car and you take their money for selling them a car and then you take the car back, you should give them the money back. And that's an honest person. And then, as I said, uh, Heidi, in the main, most of the accountants are honest, but there's a handful of rogues that I've come across. And in all the years of doing it, I've now tightened the terms and conditions so that it took into account all these different situations that could occur. One more question. Mm-hmm. Do you, as in Chen and Naylor, do you usually borrow to buy a parcel or do you usually finance it out of cash flow? It's a combination of both. Generally, you could not fund a whole lot out of cash flow. There's no problem with borrowing money as long as you keep the LVR reasonably low and you can fund it. So debt is not the problem. It's the inability to service the debt is the problem. And generally, you know, if you want to grow, there's got to be a certain amount of good debt as opposed to bad debt. There's got to be a certain amount of good debt in your balance sheet. And as I said, as long as the serviceability is there, and there's no problem with borrowing. Now, if you could fund the whole thing out of cash flow, then that's that's fine. But That's not been our experience. Our experience has been that there's a certain amount, at least the first upfront needs to be borrowed, and then the the next two tranches can be uh, cash flowed from both the profits of the fees that you purchase plus the profits of your existing practice could be used to fund the second and the third tranche. But generally there's, there's some level of borrowing in there. And the banks have, uh, are reasonably okay with uh, practices. It's, as the Royal Commission tightened up the conditions of lending to mum and dads, it uh, coincidentally lessened the requirements on lending to businesses because you know, the banks had to keep making money. And uh, if they couldn't make it from one avenue, they, they made it easier on the other avenue. So they made it a little bit easier on borrowing to buy practices. Uh, and, and accounting practices fall into... A reasonably safe category, just as real estate, real estate um, rent rolls and, and accountants' practices um, considered reasonably safe. That fits in with what I once heard before. I interviewed somebody who has a finance house, who set up a finance house just to finance the acquisition of accounting practices. And he said he had never had a default debt. Mm. Yeah. That confirms what you're saying, that accounting yes. practices are quite a safe... Reasonably reasonably safe, yes, compared to uh, a lot of the other industries. And the other one is rent rolls. Rent rolls are considered to be very safe to lend against. So we're, we're in this position that's um, unique and, um, you know, it's quite, um, I think it's quite a good industry to be in. We dwelled into such an interesting topic. Lots of people don't find it interesting because most accountants are very conservative and they don't like debt. So they never, ever consider going into debt to buy a practice. So I don't know whether it would be 
that interesting to an accounting firm, but it, it could be. But from my experience with accountants, they're very conservative when it comes to business and, um, you know, borrowing money to buy a parcel fees. They wouldn't do that. I think, anyway, I'm, I'm just guessing here. But maybe that's also why it is so many large and larger medium-sized practices that buy the little ones because other little practices just don't have the inclination to go into debt to buy another small accounting practice. So yes. maybe that's also why there is so much acquisition at the higher end of town. Well, I, I said 10 years ago, I said that, you know, over the next 10 years, the smaller practices will disappear as the bigger practices buy them, buy them out. You know, 10 years on, I think that's true. But it didn't happen at the rate I thought it would because of the GFC. But I think moving forward, that prediction will still be correct, that the smaller firms will sell out to the larger firms because it's just getting too difficult to run a practice on your own as a sole trader because the when I started in the early 80s, there was only income tax. There was no capital gains tax. There was no GST. There was no SMSF. internet. SMSFs. There was no internet. There was no I, you know, IT issues. There was no software. It was just um, income tax. It was quite simple to run. Now you've got HR issues. You've got, you know, you've got all those issues and it's just quite, and of course the clients are much, much more sophisticated than than they were and uh, it's because of the internet and uh, the information is quite available to them so you're, you're dealing with someone who's a lot more, a client who's a lot more sophisticated, who demands a lot more, who expects a lot more and, you know, that it's at a heightened level of expectation. And when you add all that together, it's very difficult to run a very, very small practice and you need to get it at least at least 800,000, six to 800,000 Before you find it, you find it gets a bit easier because you then have resources around you. So the critical mass, you've got to get most businesses, you, you've got to reach a critical mass before it becomes a business, not a not a job. And uh, in accounting, it's it's at least 600. So 800 would be better. And at, at a million dollars, as long as you run it properly, then you'll find that it's much easier because you're not you know, so beholden to key staff. So you might have several staff and if one left, then, you know, the other one takes over for a little while until you find somebody else. But if you've only got one key staff and they left, then you're in a bit of a pickle. So for all those reasons, you know, like um, it's the critical mass you've got to get to that makes it a bit easier. So I think that for a small practitioner who's just trying to grow it organically, like yourself, it's going to be very very difficult that's why i suggest that you should just consider buying a parcel get yourself up to that critical mass and then you can go you know like it's a, a huge relief because you're not beholden to all those potential problems that can mm -hmm. hurt you at the level at the small level i believe that's going to continue on in the next you know five to ten years you will see more of the smaller practitioners sell out and the the bigger ones will gobbled them up and uh, there'll be less other sole practitioner buying it for the reasons I explained, if, especially if it's in Sydney or Melbourne, they themselves that have a mortgage and to then have a mortgage on top of a mortgage to purchase, purchase a practice would uh, reduce the number of people that are available to do this and what's left are the, big, the bigger practices. And unless a vendor is willing to work with a bigger practice, namely 
that they won't move their office into the vendor's office. It's the other way around. They have to be prepared to uh, to move, especially if it's if you're a smaller seller. I think that's that's all I could add. I think that covers most of it. Welcome back. So the price for parcels of fees lies between 0.8 to 1.2 on a dollar per dollar basis. So for an accounting practice with a revenue of 500,000, you will probably pay between 400 and 600,000, depending on the age of clients, payment history, recurring revenue, and so on. In the next episode, episode 204, Ed Chen will talk about how to find and retain great staff. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to Class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.